everyone. Welcome to Crime Colts and Coffee. I'm Bryn. And before we get started this week, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who attended my baby shower last weekend, as well as my mom and Kelsey and my mother-in-law who helped put this amazing Halloween-themed baby shower together. It was perfect including the spooky, dreary weather that came towards the end of the baby shower, although it did screw things up a little bit because we had to go from outside to inside. It was absolutely amazing, and I'm just so grateful. With that being said, I'm going to hop right into some recommendations. I just finished a book called Girl Forgotten by Karen Slaughter, and if you've listened in past episodes, you know I'm obsessed with Karen Slaughter's books, and this one is definitely one of my faves of hers. It was such a smooth read with lots of twists and turns, and the whole book was just amazing, I thought, in my opinion. So, if you want to give Girl Forgotten a read by Karen Slaughter, go for it. Show-wise, I've still been watching House, nothing new there, and podcast-wise, same old, same old again. So aside from books, I really don't have that many recommendations for this week. Jumping into this week's coffee recipe, I decided to go with something on the fall side because we are in mid-September now. And I am going to be discussing a brown sugar apple iced coffee recipe which sounds pretty bomb and calls for some fresh apples because you do need to make the syrup. So there are eight ingredients. It says that you need three Honeycrisp apples, large, thick sliced. You need one and a half cups of brown sugar, a half a teaspoon of cinnamon, one teaspoon of vanilla extract, one tablespoon of butter salted, one half and half or heavy cream, And I'm sure for our lactose-free friends, such as myself, you can use some kind of milk alternative, although it might not be as creamy as the recipe calls for. You also need one iced coffee or cold brew and one and a half cups of water. It says this recipe should take about 30 minutes to make, so it is a little time-consuming, but if you have the time, why not go for it? It sounds pretty good. So this recipe was located on the saltymarshmallow.com. That's where I got it from. And she did have some suggestions that went along with it. So I'm going to read those for you guys. She said, when you make the syrup, make sure to allow the brown sugar to dissolve first before adding the apples. This only takes a minute. If you add the apples in right away, it's fine, but the sugar might crystallize. And I'm reading this verbatim. She also said you can use any apples you want for the recipe. She personally uses Honeycrisp, but use whatever you want on them. And then she recommends letting this simmer for at least 20 minutes and up to 30 minutes. The longer it simmers, the more apple flavor you will have. The apples will basically be somewhat solid, but very mushy when poked with a fork at the end of simmering time. I poured the syrup into a jar through a fine mesh strainer and discarded the apples. You can also just pull the apples out with a slotted spoon. If you want to save the apples, just pour them over some vanilla ice cream for a quick dessert. And she said she does call for one tablespoon of butter at the end of simmering time, 
but this is optional if you don't want butter in your coffee. She said it just adds a nice richness to the syrup. And she said she found the syrup was best used within 10 days. Keep it in a container with a lid in the fridge and give it a good shake before you use it. Use about one tablespoon and add more depending how sweet you like it in your drink. So you're creating this apple syrup with the ingredients used and then adding it in to the coffee after creating the syrup. Like I said, this one seems a little complicated, maybe a little more intricate, but if you give it a try, let me know what it tastes like. The pictures look amazing, and aside from <laughs> the length of time it takes to make the syrup, it sounds like a pretty delicious recipe. So that is the recipe for this week. Again, it is a brown sugar apple iced coffee. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. So grab your coffee and have a morning with us. This week's episode was suggested by Christina, so thank you, Christina. She had actually written this in to me a while ago, but as I've mentioned, it is taking me a little bit to get through the case suggestion list, as well as throwing in random ones here and there, and the haunted places and all that. So, sorry for finally getting to it, but thank you, Christina, for this suggestion. And I just wanted to preface this by saying this episode comes with a trigger warning. It includes graphic detail, rape, and murder. So if you are going to be triggered by any of those things, please either listen to a past episode or join back next week. Also, I am not going to do a deep dive into this person's background I'm only going to tell necessary points because I'm already going to start this episode out by saying this man is a piece of shit. So, with that being said, I'm only going to tell what's necessary about his background. So, if you want to do a deep dive on him in specific, go for it. This episode is about Stephen Peter Morin, or more so about his victims, Stephen Peter Marin had many aliases. This included Rich Clark, spelt C-L-A-R-K, or Rich Clark, spelt C-L-A-R-K-E, Thomas David Hones, Ray Constantino, Constantine, Robert Ireland, and Robert Fred Generoso. It's a shame Morin didn't use Moron as an alias. He missed that opportunity. He was born February 19th, 1951 in Providence, Rhode Island, and not much is known about his childhood, but his family was said to have lived in poverty. He dropped out of school at an early age, and as a teen, he began using drugs and started to engage in criminal behavior. In the mid-1960s, he was arrested in Florida for stealing a car in which some articles stated that he was 15 years old at the time. In 1968, Morin left Florida, and in 1972, he was arrested for stealing another car and being in possession of LSD. He lived a transient lifestyle and spent most of the 1970s living in Northern California, mostly in the San Francisco Bay Area. He would frequently move around this area while committing crimes, 
1976, he was arrested for resisting arrest and possession of a syringe. However, between not staying in one place for too long and using different names, he was able to avoid being caught for a lot of the crimes he committed. I'm now going to discuss a period of time ranging between November 1969 and December 11th, 1981. Morin committed a multitude of crimes. These crimes ranged from car theft to drug possession to rape. He had been added to the FBI's most wanted list after he abducted, tortured, and raped a 14-year-old girl. This was on September 26th, 1976, and he tricked her into going into his apartment, where he bound her, hung her from a ceiling hook, raped, and tortured her for hours. He then released her in a shopping center. After leaving the San Francisco area, he made his way to Las Vegas, Nevada. Here, he met a woman named Sylvia, who later became his wife, and at some point, the couple visited Sylvia's family. They lived in Connecticut, and while there, Morin made a visit to Yale University's library. Here he searched through obituaries and found men that were similar to him. One man that he had found was named Robert Generoso, who I had mentioned at the beginning of this episode. He obtained his birth certificate to use for a fake identity in the future and that's why he became one of his aliases. At some point after this, Morin was also arrested in California for pulling a gun on two men. He gave a fake identity to police and was released on $500 bail from this incident. Further discovery revealed that it didn't end there for Morin, but that he was actually a serial killer as well. So... Getting into some more of his known and or possible victims. September 25th, 1979, Sheila Griffith, who was 22 years old at the time, was last seen in Las Vegas. She had left a place called the Silver Nugget with a man. November 27th, 1979, her body was found in the Mojave Desert covered with a sleeping bag. She was located near the Nevada state line. January 16, 1980, Susan Belote, who was 19 years old, had been abducted by Morin in Las Vegas. She was reported missing after not returning home from a shopping trip. Her body was found in Utah on May 26, 1980, months after she had gone missing. A large stone was found on top of her and she was badly decomposed, so a definite cause of death could not be determined, but she was believed to have been strangled. She was not immediately identified. June 1980, Cheryl Ann Daniel, and some articles stated her last name as Daniels, was 20 years old at the time when she was murdered. Some articles say that she was taken from a supermarket parking lot in Las Vegas called Alpha Beta Supermarket. Marin had shot her in the head, and she had dated him thinking that his name was Andrew Ireland. December 13, 1980, her body was also found in Utah, six months after she had gone missing. 
She was left in the desert in Hell Hole Canyon. However, a piece of evidence was found along with her body. Marin had dropped a bank card. After the murder of Cheryl, he also began to stalk one of Cheryl's friends. Her name was Sarah Pysan. He would go to a gas station where she worked, but Sarah had no idea that this was the same man that had dated Cheryl at the time of her disappearance. Sarah knew Marin as Robert Generoso and had found him to be friendly when he came into her work. Eventually, Marin began to send her beeper messages, and after going to police, Sarah found out that it was the man she knew as Generoso. Sarah ended up going through a book of mugshots and identified multiple pictures as Generoso. The police ended up telling her that all these photos were of one man in different disguises, Morin. December 1980, he told his estranged wife, Sylvia, that he was leaving Las Vegas and would continually call her to ask about the murders. He told his ex that he was being set up by police. It was also suspected that Morin was in Hawaii during this time. At some point, he then went to Louisiana, followed by Buffalo, New York, and in Buffalo, he met a woman named Rita Xavier and convinced her to travel cross-country with him. During these travels, they stopped in Denver, Colorado to visit Rita's family and remained in Denver. November 6, 1981, Sheila Wallen, who was 23 years old, was murdered by Marin in Golden, Colorado. November 7, 1981, she was found in a room in Lakewood, Colorado at the Mountain View Motel. She had been stabbed and belongings of hers were also missing. These articles of clothing were later found in his van. After Sheila's murder, Marin and Xavier left Colorado and traveled to Texas. December 2, 1981, Jana Bruce, who was 21, was then murdered by Morin in Corpus Christi, Texas. She had been taken from a Hilton Inn parking lot, and her body was found in a culvert on Padre Island. She had died of, quote, asphyxiation as a result of ligature strangulation. Fingerprints found on her 1979 Chevrolet Monza later matched fingerprints taken from Morin. Morin's partner, Rita Xavier, allegedly knew nothing of the murders that he had committed. This was made clear in a statement later made by her son. Xavier ended up leaving Morin because she, quote, didn't like how Marin looked at other women, and was jealous of the charm he exuded. And that was a quote from truecrimeedition.com. He, however, wasted no time in moving on and started a relationship with a woman named Sarah Clark, who was 32 years old, and traveled with her through Texas. Reportedly, unlike Xavier, Clark knew of his murderous ways. December 6, 1981, Michael Reed, who was 29, and Pearl Lutz, who was 26, were shot in San Antonio, Texas. Marin had tried to abduct them, and Michael and Pearl, thankfully, both survived. December 11, 1981, 
Marin and Clark tried to steal the car of Carrie Marie Scott, who was 21 years old at the time. She caught them in the act, and instead of fleeing, they tried to abduct Carrie. Carrie was shot along with her friend Drew Valdez, who was 25, outside a restaurant in San Antonio. Carrie died from her injuries. Drew was wounded and survived. Morin later said that he had not intended to murder Carrie, but he did. On to the arrest and trials. During this time, police had caught on to Marin's crimes and had been tracking Marin and Clark from a distance. Apparently too far, though, since Carrie had been murdered and another woman had been abducted in the meantime, along with the murders of God knows who else, but I digress. He was also being pursued by federal authorities. December 11th, 1981, hours after Carrie had been murdered, the Sands Motel, where Morin and Clark had been living in San Antonio, was swarmed by SWAT. Clark was caught by them, but Marin escaped the police. Not only that, but upon this arrest, Pamela Jackson, who was 23, was found in the couple's hotel room. She had been held hostage by them for 11 days as she had been abducted on November 30th, 1981. She had been taken from an apartment complex in Corpus Christi, and her hair had been dyed brown. She had previously been blonde. She said that she had been sexually assaulted multiple times a day. After fleeing, Morin kidnapped another girl, Margaret, a.k.a. Margie Mayfield, and in some articles, she's also referenced as Margie Palm. She was taken from a Kmart parking lot and held hostage by Morin in a car. For hours, Margie tried to convince Morin to let her go and also quoted Bible verses to him. She even placed her hands on his head, trying to, quote-unquote, cast out the evil from him. She was surprisingly released by him in Austin, Texas. And if you have the time and or want to... Check out her recollection of her story as reported by Vanity Fair. There's a lot more detail with what she did and what went down in the car that day, and the link to that will be included in the resources. December 12th, 1981, Morin then went to a bus station in Austin, where he planned to take a bus to Fort Worth. However, police found him and were able to capture him before he got on the bus. He was then transported back to San Antonio. After his arrest, Morin was tried separately in Texas for the murders of Carrie Scott and Jana Bruce. He was also put on trial for the murder of Sheila Wallen in Colorado, and sentencing for the murder of Cheryl Daniels in Utah was, quote, retracted due to the convictions holding in Texas, and that was a quote from truecrimeedition.com. And other articles actually elaborated that no rhyme or reason was ever really fully released as to why that sentencing or conviction didn't take place, but yeah, just figured I'd mention that. He pled guilty to capital murder in Texas, in which he was convicted of two counts, and he also waived his appeals. 
February 1984, he was sentenced to death. Moving on to some aftermath. In prison, Morin became a born-again Christian, but I'm not going to discuss anything else in regards to his quote-unquote redemption or rediscovery because I'm trying my best to not make this episode about him, even though it exists in the first place because of the horrible things he did. March 13th, 1985, he was executed at Texas State Prison at age 34. He died of lethal injection, and relatives of his victims were present. His last words were a prayer, and all I can say is whether or not he actually did find a new calling, I hope his born-again murderous ass is saying that prayer on repeat for lifetimes, before he thinks he can gain any form of redemption for what he did. He was the sixth man executed by lethal injection in Texas. Sadly, for as much as that was mentioned on this episode regarding his aliases and the crimes that he committed, there is even more that is unknown in regards to Morin. For those that did know or write about this case, he was later referred to as quote-unquote the chameleon, so that was kind of his name within the media or within the press. It is actually believed that he committed at least 40 murders of women and young girls, as well as the murders of seven men in the span of those 12 years mentioned. In a wiki article, it stated, quote, In total, Stephen Morin was investigated for 48 violent murders committed in the states of Utah, Colorado, Nevada, Washington, Idaho, Indiana, Missouri, Pennsylvania, Texas, New York, and California. If this is true, he committed more murders than other serial killers that are more well-known in our society such as the Night Stalker, Dahmer, and Bundy. Not that we should know who he is, but we should know of these crimes and the lives that were tragically taken by him. Because of his fake identities and nomadic lifestyle, there has not been enough evidence to charge him with other murders and crimes. Sarah Pysan, who was the woman that Morin had stalked, wrote a book about her story called Sarah's Story, Target of a Serial Killer. In 1994, Margie Mayfield, aka Margie Palm, who had escaped him right before his arrest, talked publicly about her experience and how she called in faith and convinced Marin to do the same. In the Vanity Fair article, it was also revealed that Marin had stayed in contact with Margie, feeling oddly connected to her. And that is where today's episode ends. As mentioned, check out that Vanity Fair article. It is extremely long, but there are so many details in reference to Margie's experience and her perspective on Marin and a little bit of background in regards to her and what led up to him abducting her that day and then a little bit of the aftermath as well that was mentioned in this episode. But there's just so many details. If you found this case interesting or want to know more about it, go for it. Just throwing it out there. 
I wish there were more in-depth stories regarding all of his victims online, but sadly there aren't. And as mentioned, even though he was a horrific human and a serial killer of potentially 40 people or more, there really was not that much coverage done on the story surrounding him and the crimes that he committed especially during that time and what it comes down to it seems through a lot of the articles or the perspectives of the people who wrote the articles was that he had so many aliases and identities that it's hard to even tie certain crimes to him or during that time there was so much going on as well with crimes and these serial killers and I don't want to say prolific serial killers but these well-known serial killers in our society nowadays where certain crimes were being covered more than others and because his were, were so spread out all over the country and then with all his different names that he used they're thinking that maybe certain crimes were also pinned on other people that were his. For example, there was an overlap in one of the articles it's mentioned. I forget which article, but in one of the articles it's mentioned that there was an overlap with him being somewhere the same time period as Ted Bundy was somewhere and the author speculated that maybe, especially one crime in specific, people believed to be tied to Ted Bundy could in fact be actually tied to Marin and that was just their perspective or speculation or theory on it but I found it really interesting because this man was just like they said a chameleon and he would change his appearance he would change his name and there were episodes in the past that where Kelsey and I covered that expressed how back then it was a lot easier to do those kind of things and thank god times have changed with that with being able to just steal or create an identity on a whim. But the fact that this man got away with doing such horrible things for so long without people knowing he was committing these types of crimes and knowing of certain crimes he did, but not knowing the real depth of what he was doing and the lives he was taking is just absolutely horrific. So, I definitely felt it was important to tell this story, not only because it was recommended by a listener, but I felt that the story of these victims should be told, especially for people who don't know their story. It's sad that the case had to include so much of him in today's episode. Like I said, I tried not to do too much background on him because I don't want to make it about him, but... As mentioned, this episode exists because of the things he did, and with the amount of lives he took, I couldn't really make this episode's title the name of the victims like I typically do. I decided to name this episode The Chameleon because I'd rather not him get the notoriety with his name being linked to an episode. And without any more rambling, I think I will jump into the spiel to conclude today's episode. You can find Crime Cults and Coffee on Instagram. That's where I post pictures of coffee reviewed, any past coffee reviews, past episodes, information regarding important things in relation to the podcast, merch information, listener reposts, anything like that you can find in the highlights on the Instagram page. 
The link tree in the bio has most of the listening platforms that this podcast is on. If you go to Facebook at Crime Cults and Coffee, that's where I put resources, photos, links, calls to action. And as mentioned in other episodes, you can also always find any call to action in relation to that episode within the episode show notes. If you have a listener story or a case suggestion like Christina did for this episode, you can email me at crimecoltsandcoffee at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at crimecoltsandcoffee. That's where you can also send me some listener art if you have any of that. If you want to leave a rate and review on any listening platform that will allow you to do so, this includes Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can do that. I'd appreciate it. I'll send you some stickers as long as you send me a screenshot so I know it's you. And constructive criticism is always a plus. I'll take it. DM it to me. Email it to me. Just be kind. If you can't leave a rate and review or simply don't want to, on any listening platform of your choice, you can like, you can follow, you can subscribe, and that will let you know when new episodes come out each week. So until next week... Maybe you want to read that Vanity Fair article. Maybe you want to read the book recommendation, which was my only recommendation of this week. I highly suggest you check it out. Karen Slaughter is top-notch. If you have not read one of her books yet, my top fave of hers is The Good Daughter. I think I've mentioned that on other episodes, but shout out Karen Slaughter. You are an incredible writer and I'm obsessed with your books, and I'm just going to move on to the next one this week. So maybe I'll have a new recommendation for one of her books for next week's episode. And until next week, if you have nice weather, enjoy it. If you don't, maybe do some fun rainy fall activities, and I'll talk to you later. Bye! regarding this case and our resources follow us at crime cults and coffee on instagram and facebook